Thank you so much for being here. I hope that you received uh, an outline whenever you came in. I know they were passing those out. I'm very thankful for Jared and Jordan earlier giving me a little more time in this service uh, to talk about what I think is a very, very important topic. And I'll say more about that in just a moment. We're actually pausing, for those of you who are doing our Life Along the Way uh, study with us, a year-long study in the life of Jesus. We're going to pause from that this morning. And uh, so as we do, would you please bow your head and let's pray. Father, we thank you because you are good. Lord, we ask that as we open your word, that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning as we think about something that you designed in our life. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive what you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name that everybody said, amen. amen. On top of that outline that you received, you'll see Acts 9. Acts chapter 9 begins this way. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats, and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he found, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me, Jesus says. Saul is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, verse 1. He is looking for people who are a part of the way, men or women, verse 2. He wants to bring them bound to Jerusalem, but yet when Jesus gets here to Saul in this moment on the way to Damascus, he says, why are you persecuting me? Not the church, me. It's as if all the persecution and criticism and belittling that Saul had done to the church Jesus says, you, you're actually doing that to me. Jesus so identified with his church that the persecution was personal. It was a personal attack. And I think as we'll see this morning, this deep personal nature of our relationship with the church should be the same. Now, I've been on a journey for over a year now. As we were discerning and praying through, leaving the United Methodist Church and ultimately moving into the Free Methodist Church, over a year ago I began to ask a question. And that question I believe is fundamental to the Christian life. And the question that I was wrestling with and I've been studying, I've been searching the scriptures, looking throughout church history, the question that I've been wrestling with is simply what is church membership. What does it actually mean to belong to a local church? What does it actually mean to be a member of a local church? I mean, it's something we do, but 
how should we do it? What does the Bible have to say about it? Now, you may think, well, Chris, is there a problem with membership at Frazier, and is that the reason why you're talking about this? (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. In fact, we just had a very large membership class over in the East Sanctuary just an hour ago. It's wonderful. You may say, is there some particular problem within the current members of Fraser? Is that why you're preaching this? Oh, no, not at all. All is well. All is well. No, but for over a year, I've been searching the Scriptures, looking throughout church history, asking myself this simple question. What does it mean to be a member of a local church? I gave an all-staff talk on this a few weeks ago. A lead team has talked about it. One of our discipleship and worship teams got together and had a discussion about it. And out of that discussion, they asked me to give you, the congregation, a sermon or message on the biblical understanding of church membership. And so as we go into this, I'm thankful for people like Dr. Anderson, Dr. Dever, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, Bishop Coward, others who have helped provoke my mind in this area. Amazing people like Dr. Andy Harris, who is a member, longtime member of this church have helped me think about what does it mean, what does the Bible teach us about what it means to be a member? Now, I know a lot of churches were talking about this and thinking about this post-COVID, right? And even right now, uh, every one of us fall at least within one of these five categories. And there could be more categories, sure. But every one uh, one of us fall in at least one of these five. Either number one, we're a faithful member, where every week we are here. Or number two, sometimes we have people who choose not to come for a variety of reasons, so they're kind of sporadic. Or number three, there are people who can't be here every week because of family obligations or work or whatever it may be. They love the church, invest in the church, all that stuff. They just can't be here every week. Number four, we have faithful, faithful shut-ins who watch us week in and week out who love this church, pray for this church, they encourage the members of this church, either by phone calls or writing cards, things like that, who invest in this church. We love our shut-ins who watch us every week. For some people, though, they watch us online and on television, and you're sitting out there right now, and we're just kind of a religious product, right? We just provide this kind of religious service for the television audience. And what I would say to those of you who are watching online and on television, is that it is very important that you get into a local church, that you become a member of a local church. And I would even go so far as to say this, for those of you watching online and on television, that if you are capable of going to a local church, you are capable of it. Instead of just consuming church on TV or doing home church, if you're capable of going to a local church and you truly are a Christian, I would say, brother or sister in Christ, you need to be careful. Go to a church. Be involved in a Bible-believing church because not to do so might just be sin for you. And I mean that sincerely for all you who are watching online on television right now. For those of us, the rest of us, and as we go throughout the rest of this message, I would just say some people question the very idea of church membership. Not only do people question the idea of church memberships, our culture tells us that any kind of membership that is not fully and completely beneficial to us is not worth having. Meaning any kind of membership that requires things of us outside of a little bit of time and maybe a little bit of money 
is not worth pursuing or could even be oppressive. But the Bible paints a very different picture when it comes to membership. I've had many people say to me, Chris, isn't membership in a local church just kind of voluntary? You know, people just kind of choose whether or not they want to do that. Again, the New Testament teaches us something very different. Because you cannot say, yes, I love the Father, I just have nothing to do with his family. That didn't even make sense, especially in our earthly families. We all know that when someone says, yeah, I love my dad, but I have nothing to do with my siblings, we know that something has gone wrong. If not gone wrong, it's dysfunctional at best. And so this idea that, yes, I can have a relationship with God, but I don't have a relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ is not logical. People often miss local church membership because when they go to the Bible, they are actually looking for this modern notion of membership, this modern idea. And the modern idea of membership goes something like this. There is a group that I want to identify with. I assume they want me. So I fill out some paperwork, pay some dues, and then because I am a paying member of that particular thing, because I'm a paying member, there are certain services that are provided to me. A lot of times that's how we think of membership. We think of church membership like Costco or something, or a social group, or a civic group. Because I pay and I got in, then there are certain services that should be provided to me. The problem with that thinking is that's nowhere in the Bible. The problem with that line of thinking is that the church is actually not a service provider. Right now we are sitting in a worship service. But who is the service unto? We're not sitting here in a worship service for my benefit. We're not sitting here even for your benefit, not primarily, no. We are sitting here because we are worshiping and our service is unto God, not us. So I think a good image to think about the local church would be to think of it as an outpost or to use a more modern term, an embassy. This is the language Paul uses in Philippians 3.20 on your sheet. He says, but our citizenship, that is your located citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and Philippi was a Roman colony, right? Meaning, at all times, Philippi represented Rome, and it considered itself as an outpost of Rome, which it very much was. And these colonies existed to spread the Roman culture throughout the whole world. Now Paul comes along and he says, you are a citizen of heaven. Your citizenship resides in heaven, which means that each local church is an outpost of heaven that spreads the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the whole world. The early believers in Philippi who are reading Paul's letter and they see that word citizenship, they know what this means. They know the high calling of being a citizen of Rome. And he's wanting us to understand the high calling of being a citizen of heaven. 
But you may ask the question, how do we get into this embassy or this outpost? Well, simply put, the main requirement is that you have to be a baptized Christian. You have to be a baptized Christian. It would be a serious lack of integrity to go join a Christian church when you really were not a Christian. But what this also tells us is that one of the challenges and chief responsibilities that the church has is to make sure that the people who are joining the church are, in fact, Christians. Now, the gift of liberal evangelical Protestantism to the modern church has been this idea that membership is something that must never be denied to a person because that would be exclusive, right? And because this liberal ideology has been the main practices within local churches all over America, that is why we look up one day and all of a sudden the church looks just like the world, acts just like the world, and sounds just like the world. Because it's full of people who are still a part of the world. One person said a local church is a real life embassy set in the present that represents Christ's future kingdom. He goes on to say, if heaven is what Jonathan Edwards called a world of love, then the local church should be a preview and foretaste of that world. As one of my teachers taught me, the gospel is only for sinners. Please hear me. The prerequisite for receiving the gospel is you have to understand that you actually are a sinner. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come for those who don't think they're sick. I came for those who know they're sick. I didn't come for people who think they're righteous. No, no, no. But those who know they're unrighteous. Because the gospel is only for sinners. The church, though, is only for repentant sinners. Notice, I didn't say perfect people. If you go to a church that claims to be perfect, number one, that's a lie. Number two, don't join that church on the off chance that it may be true and you would mess it up. Yeah. But the gospel is only for sinners. But church membership is only for repentant sinners, people whose lives have been marked by repentance that leads to baptism and the ongoing repentance that leads to holiness. So that leads me to my first question. And all that was introduction, by the way. (laughs) Hope you got lunch. Uh, My first question is why is church membership important? Why is church membership important? And for those of you who are getting really, really nervous right now, I will not get to most of the backside of the handout, just to put you at ease. Why is membership, church membership important? Number one is that membership is how we love one another. Membership is how we love one another. And let us not cheapen the word love here. So many times in our culture, we reduce uh, words like love down to feelings, but love here is an action. Peter is writing to the scattered church who's enduring persecution. In 1 Peter 2.17, he's telling them how to live godly lives in a pagan society. And he says to them, one of the key things you've got to do is to love the brotherhood of believers. I used to read statements like that and think, that seems so exclusive, but it is. What he's saying is that if you're going to survive the onslaught of the Christian faith that was happening in the first century and is happening today, by the way, 
If you're going to survive that, then you have to understand there is a unique love and a unique brotherhood among true believers. Paul would put it this way in Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And most of the time, that's where we stop, and we like that, right? As we have opportunity, when we get around to it, let us do something good for everyone or anyone we come in contact with. And then he puts on, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. When he says, so then, as we have opportunity, he means every chance you get, let us do good. Yes to everyone, but especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. Especially them. And what does it mean to do good? So many times when we hear that phrase, oh, go do good, what we think is, I'm going to come up with something that's nice, something that's I'll call good, and I'm going to go around, I'm going to dispense that good out to other people. That's actually what not, that's not what Paul's talking about. The word good and godly are synonymous within the first century context. What he's saying is that we need to recognize the godly needs, the God needs in our brothers and sisters' lives, and then we go do that. We fulfill those needs for them. It doesn't start with my good idea. It is what is the good that needs to happen, the godly thing that my brother and sister in Christ actually need because that's how we love one another. And love is not tolerance. Tolerance has its place within society, but so many times we replace love with tolerance in the modern church. You can tolerate someone from across the street, but if you're going to love them, you have to know them and get close to them. And that kind of love is not easy. That's why Paul says in Romans 15, 1, we who are strong, meaning in our faith, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That's our natural inclination. That when we're strong and we're always working on ourselves and all that stuff, when we feel like we're strong, well, I'm just going to take care of me. I'm not going to inconvenience myself for anybody else. Many times that's how we think, right? Oh, you wore your halo this morning. Good for you. All right. Many times that's how we think. But Paul says, no, 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 brothers and sisters in Christ. We actually have an obligation to one another. We have an obligation. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs. Notice it's needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the God needs, the godly needs of God's people, which means we have to know what they are. The question we should be asking is, what is needed for my koinonia, my fellowship, my ecclesia, the called out ones that I am a part of? What is needed for them to flourish? Not ask the question, how does the church serve me? It's amazing that John F. Kennedy could stand up and to the whole world, not just America, say, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And it goes down in history as one of the greatest lines ever. But if you stand up in the modern church and you say, ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church, it's amazing. That'll cause a mass exodus. <laughs> but that's exactly what Paul is saying. You see, this kind of love is love that helps us love in every situation. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony. 
with one another. The question we must ask ourselves is how do I love in the heights of joy and how do I love in the depths of sorrow? How do I love? Love is an action, not a feeling. How do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ in every situation? You see, love without action really doesn't say that much about the gospel. That's like having a marriage with no action of love. It's just neglect. There's no pursuit of one another at all. It's just, yeah, I love you from a distance. Stay over there. Lock your door. And note that all these passages are written to all Christians, not just an elite few, right? So many times we read passages like this and we say, yeah, the staff should do that or the Sunday school teacher should do that. Of course, the preacher should do that, right? But it's written to all of us. And what Paul is talking about, what Peter is talking about here, isn't just something that we do once we're mature. It's not just something we do once life slows down. No, we do it now. That's why it's so odd to me when I hear a member of a local church criticize their local church. Because the nature of our relationship is such that when you criticize your local church, you are actually criticizing yourself. Which doesn't make sense. But we are the church, and we're called to love one another. Number two, membership is how we encourage one another. Encourage one another. Again, today, the word encouragement normally means that person encourages me, meaning that person makes me feel good in some way. But our English word for encourage is actually an old French word, which means to make strong, to make strong. There's tension, actually, in the word. That's the kind of language Paul is using in the Greek in 1 Thessalonians 5.11 when he says, encourage one another. That's actually challenge language. Encourage one another and build each other up, meaning you know you're really encouraging one another when you are actually building up your brother or sister in Christ or they are building up you. Hebrews 10.24 says, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Notice that. Consider how. Take time to think about how you can stir up, you can provoke love and good works in one another. See, we say things like, don't stir the pot, don't stir things up. No, here the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, in the church, stir things up to love and good works. But notice the closeness here. You cannot consider how to stir one another up to love and good works unless you know where there is a lack of love and a lack of good works in your brother or sister's life. You may look at a passage like that and say, well, is he telling us to do that to just people in general? No. Very next verse, Hebrews 10, 25. Very next line. Not neglecting to meet together as some, or as is the habit of some. Now, just so we're clear, Whenever Paul's talking about meeting together as the church, as the assembly, as the ecclesia, he's not talking about Sunday school. Sunday school didn't come along until late 1800s, so obviously he's not talking about that. He's not even talking about small groups. That didn't come along. There's a whole movement of that later. He's talking about when the church gathers in the assembly of the Lord. That's what he's talking about, just so we're clear. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but when we are together, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I love that. What the writer of Hebrews tells us to do is to make sure we stir up in each other, we are encouraging each other, 
We stir each other up to love and good works when we come together in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. What that looks like is you putting your arm around your brother or sister who you know is obviously not walking the way the Lord wants them to walk right now. And you have permission to say this to them. You put your arm around your brother or sister in Christ and you say, he's coming back one day and in fact, we don't know the day or the hour and I want you to stand blameless before him. You see, that's what encourage means. You make them stronger in their walk. See, God's plan for your life is never just about you. So many times we make it just about us. But God's plan for your life is never just about you. It involves people living lives that are committed to other brothers and sisters in Christ that they may be strengthened in their faith. And when that happens, that's when God is glorified. Now you may say, Chris, aren't we all about grace? Absolutely. You better believe it. Because it's by grace we have been saved through faith. Oh, absolutely. We love some grace. But we do not. Love cheap grace. That cheap grace that says, I'm okay, you're okay, let's just eat, drink, and be a merry missionary. Just go about life, sera, sarah. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who lost his life to Nazi Germany, said these words. He says, cheap grace is grace we bestow on ourselves. It is not a gift of God. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. That means accountability. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without the cross. You see, we believe that grace cost something. It cost Jesus Christ his life on the cross for me and for you. And then his grace enables us to lay down our lives so that we may follow him faithfully. Oh, it cost you something. And it's so inconvenient. And we are called to encourage each other to that end. Absolutely. Number three, membership is how we watch over one another. Membership is how we watch over one another. We are a part of the Methodist movement all the way back to the 1700s. And the Methodist movement, from its early days, had a saying, this Latin phrase, sola sancta caritas, only holy love. And because of sola sancta caritas, because of this holy love, there was this phrase that the early Methodist had, and it was called, we watch over one another in holy love. That's actually what made you Methodist. Not that you went to church, the Church of England or whatever it was. No, what made you Methodist was that you would band together with other Christians and watch over one another in holy love. Because what the early Methodist would do is that they would look each other in the eyes as they were banding together in discipleship bands. They would look each other in the eyes and they would say, I need you to care about my soul. And I need you to care about the eternal destination of my soul. That's what I need. And in the meantime, 
In the meantime, I need you, brother or sister in Christ, to care that I actually look like Jesus here and now. See, that's how the Methodist movement grew. And when, matter of fact, if you look throughout history, when the Methodist movement, when they stopped requiring that you go be a part of a band, an accountability group, in order to come to church, that's when the numbers started declining. Because we stopped watching over one another in holy love. And even today, you say that in modern churches, just like this one. All of a sudden, everybody gets nervous, and they're like, oh, no, I don't know if I want to sign up for that. Oh, well, okay, you don't have to. But what I would say to you is that you need somebody to watch over you in holy love because we are so prone to self-deception. And we need people in our lives who will love us enough to tell us when we're wrong. We need people who will love us enough to speak up because they love us. We watch over one another. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Notice that. See to it, church, that no one fails to obtain. By the way, if the writer is saying, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, you know what that means, right? You can actually fail to obtain the grace of God. That's what it means. So he's saying the church, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Notice he says, see to it, church, that no one fails to obtain. The word obtain means to lack the benefit of because I've been left behind. I stopped walking with Christ. I stopped walking with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I just stopped and everybody else was moving on. He's saying, church, you've got to go and try to help that brother or sister continue to walk with Christ and continue to walk with his spiritual family because you don't want bitterness to spring up in them because bitterness always troubles the bitter person, doesn't it? Yeah, it spills over into other relationships, but bitterness is the cancer of the soul to a bitter person. It eats them alive. And he says, no, don't let that happen because by it many become defiled. Which means you, O oh Christian, can become defiled. You can. I can. And that's why we have to watch over one another. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's this passage we normally skip over. But it's actually an image of grace and love. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, church, and a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. I'm going to trust you know what that means. Verse 2, are you arrogant, Paul says to the church? Ought you rather not mourn? Shouldn't you grieve what grieves God? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Uh-oh. That's the parts of the Bible we like to skip. But why, Paul? Why remove this man? Verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, meaning in church, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. You are to deliver him over so that he may repent, it says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The goal is salvation. 
And then he says to the church in verse 6, your boasting is not good. The church was just walking around going, look how open we are. Look how tolerant we are. We just let anybody in. And Paul says, that's not good. Because do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You see, the man in 1 Corinthians 5, he thought of himself as a Christian. The church celebrated him as a Christian when he obviously wasn't, at least living like one. And he's saying to them, church, you have to do something for his soul's sake. That, my friends, is real love. Real love says no. Ask any parent. Real love says no, that is not right. And all Christians have this kind of relationship with the local church. We are to do this for one another as we watch over one another in holy love. The church is in the business of giving the assurance of salvation. But when we are not walking in or living out that salvation, we need someone to speak up again. We need someone to love us enough to speak up and warn us. So many times what we do in the modern church is we just go off and we gossip about people and we shame people off in a corner instead of going to them and looking them in the eyes and saying, brother or sister, I love you and this is not right. Because again, that would be judgmental and things like that. The question is, do you want to live like the world and just be a part of a shaming culture or do you want to love your brother or sister in Christ and watch over them in that love? In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul's writing back to the church in Corinth, and he's actually talking about the same man in 1 Corinthians 5. This time, the church, he's saying something very different. He's saying that the man has repented. Now, turn and forgive him, comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Verse 6, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. In between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the man has repented. And he's saying, please continue to reaffirm your love for him. Let him back in. Now, a lot of times when we read things like that, we say, oh, that's just Paul. Right? Or, oh, that's old practices. We don't do that anymore. We've evolved beyond that. That's not Paul. That's Jesus. And that's Matthew 18. And if right now what I'm saying to you from 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2 is like rubbing you the wrong way, please go read, give an honest read to Jesus' words in Matthew 18 and what he says about resolving conflict. The goal of watching over one another is that we all live in alignment with the Lord Jesus and that happens through repentance. Just sometimes we need a brother or sister in Christ to encourage us in that. Number four, and lastly... Membership is how we witness to the world. Membership is how we witness to the world. Please hear me. If you are a member of Fraser this morning, if you're a guest, so glad to have you. But if you're a member of Fraser, how we live with each other here is our greatest witness out there. And what happens in the modern church is that we tell ourselves in order to be attractive out there, we have to let anything go in here. You name me one liberal church, denomination, network that's growing 
one. You won't find it. Because when you take the Holy Scriptures and you throw them out, and there's no true love and accountability within the church, it dies. When you take the Bible and you start cutting it up and taking things out of it that you don't particularly like or it makes you uncomfortable, your church dies. But how we live out and love and encourage and watch over one another in here, it is our greatest witness out there. And it's not liberal, but it's also not legalistic. We watch over one another in holy love. And I am so thankful that we have this beautiful love and accountability and grace in this church. I am so thankful. Because when you join the church, what you are saying, and I just told a whole class of people who joined just an hour ago, when you join the church, you were saying to all the members, I am now your responsibility and you are now mine. That's what Jesus says in John 13, 33 through 35. He says, little children, Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, not your definition, but just as I have loved you. From rebuking to restoration and everything in between, Jesus says, just as I loved you, every moment I challenged you, I was loving you, all of that. And then he says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people out there will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, if you choose to do it. And that's why John would write things like 1 John 4.20. But if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar. John said, if anyone says, oh yeah, it's me and God, we're good. We're good. We're okay. But I hate my Christian brother or sister. John says, no, you're not okay. In fact, you're a liar. That's why when people who go to certain kinds of services absolutely hate other Christians who go to other certain kinds of services, I look at that and go, you have no idea how much danger your soul is in right now. That's why when young people just write off old people, they say, oh, those old Christians, they were just stuck in their ways, blah, 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 instead of learning from them, young people, you have no idea how much danger your soul is in. That's why when older people who've been walking with the Lord for a long time, they look down on the younger people, I look at them and go, you have no idea how much danger your soul is in right now. And because this liberal world we live in and liberal pulpits all over America, no one wants to tell that to you. But my friend, John writes these kind of things because this kind of love that Jesus is talking about actually matters. And if we say we love God but hate our brother, we are a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You actually can't do it. It's impossible. And John would say these things because of kind of the kind of tough, grace-filled love that we are supposed to have is our greatest testimony to the world. And God's evangelism strategy for the world is a healthy local church.
It always is. And that's why when people come to me and they're part of parachurch ministries, and I have people come to me all the time, they want me to endorse their ministries or their mission work, my first question to them always is, what church do you go to? And I can't tell you how many times there are people out there with 501c3s who say they love God and do all this ministry for Him, and they never go to a local church. They never give themselves to another body of believers. And I'm telling you, I will not endorse them at all unless they are living with people who will watch over them in holy love. Because the, the evangelism strategy for the world is the local church, not a nonprofit. And that's what we're called to be a part of. So you just got, and I left off three points, I encourage you to read them and to study them for yourself. The three points are, if you don't hold it, if you're not holding it in front of you, that membership is about commitment, not convenience, responsibility, not recruitment, and meaning and maturity. I encourage you to read that and study that. If you're here and this is not your church home, please join a church. It doesn't have to be this one. If you're watching online on television, it doesn't have to be this one. Please hear me. But get in a good Bible-believing church where you can band together with other people. And I know this, this service has been very unique. You've been so patient with me. Thank you so much. But you just got like over a year's worth of study condensed down into about 45 minutes. But I believe that God is calling us to do these things, to love one another, to encourage one another, to watch over one another because our witness to the world matters. It matters to God. So I pray it will matter to us. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that for us sitting here that we would not take membership, being a member of the body as Paul puts it in Romans and Corinthians, I pray that we would not take that lightly, that we would see the beauty that you have brought us in, that you have given us purpose and meaning, you have connected us together, that we are sitting here and it's not by accident. Lord, I pray for any person who needs to go to another local church. God, I bless them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as long as they will plug in and love your saints so that they may be loved by your saints. Lord, we simply want to look like your son. Forgive us for wanting to look like the world. So may we reflect him and may he be magnified. Pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name and everybody said.